This morning, I just want to say something. That is that life is tough. Life is tough. Life is hard. And we need help. Can I get a witness this morning? Life is tough. There's, I got some good news. The good news is God loves us. The good news is that God cares for us and he provides for us. God provides for us through his word, through prayer, through his Holy Spirit. God provides for us through the church. And through these and other means, God provides for us ways to navigate through the difficulties of life, the wonderful times of life, the blessings of life, the trials of life, the temptations of life, and even the tragedies of life. He provides for us. Isn't that good news? Say amen this morning if that's good news. But then there's some bad news. And the bad news is that even though God provides these wonderful means of blessing, we often neglect them. That's the bad news. The bad news is we often neglect and misunderstand the resources. The very things that God gives us to provide for us oftentimes can be the very things that we neglect and turn away from in these times of great need when we really are looking to God for his resources. Let me give you an example of the Bible. The Bible. On one hand, there are those that view the Bible as a rigorous set of rules to be legalistically followed and that we'll get in trouble if we miss out on one little spot. There's just one more thing to add to my overcrowded to-do list is to read the Bible. It's a chore. It's cumbersome. It's something that God requires of me that really doesn't have a benefit for me. On one hand, there are people that view reading the Bible that way. On the other hand, there are people that view the Bible as some pie-in-the-sky religiosity that has no bearing on my life. God is so out of touch with who I am and what I'm going through, there's nothing in the Bible that could ever direct my steps. They're just flowery words that don't connect to my life and my struggles. Well, the reality is, both of those views of the Bible are wrong. And thankfully, uh, we know that the Bible is God's record to us of his creation. The Bible is God's record to us of his care, of his love, of his character, of his salvation, of his wonderful acts, of his mercy, of his invitation to us, of the salvation he provides for those who will trust in Christ. The Bible is the record of God's provision for us in every circumstance. That's what the Bible is. And so God uses for us, by way of provision, he uses the the circumstances and people from the Bible to teach us valuable lessons. We, we look at Bible heroes and we, we come away with the understanding that if we will pursue God the way this man or this woman pursued God, then there is blessing for our obedience. We also come to understand that if we neglect God the way this man or this woman did by turning and walking away, that we can, we can count on facing the consequences. And in fact, it says for us in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, it says... These things, speaking of the Old Testament, these things happen to them, the people of God in the Old Testament. These things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. When we read through the pages of the Bible and we read about all the the names there in the the Scripture, some that we know very well, some that we've never heard of, some that in trying to pronounce them, we just kind of trip over. Who in the world would ever name their child that? You know what I'm talking about. All of those names and circumstances are in the Bible to set an example for us and to instruct us how we might follow God 
and know his provision for us. That's the value of the Bible. So this morning, would you pray with me as we begin our message? Our Heavenly Father, I come before you now thanking you for another opportunity to begin a new series of messages. Thanking you, Lord, for how you've worked through the, the lives of those that we read about in Scripture and how, how you have preserved for us a record of their lives and of their actions and of their attitudes and of their spirit. You've preserved for us, Lord, an example that we might follow those who follow you and that we might determine to not follow those who turned away from you and so that that might serve as instruction to us. We thank you for the life and story of David, who we will be studying for the next weeks. And we pray that his example might provide a great instruction for us to have and exhibit a faith, a genuine faith, in the real world in which we live, and that our lives might be for your glory as we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So this morning, we're beginning a new series of messages. I've, I've mapped it out through the end of August, and so we're going to be looking at the life of David from the Old Testament. You may well know the name of David. We'll be talking about some very familiar stories, some very, perhaps, stories that aren't as well known uh, about his life. And all along the way, we'll be looking for examples and instruction, and example and instruction. And, and I've titled this series of messages, Faith in the real world. Because here's what I know about myself. I'm not looking for some legalistic list of rules to follow. That's not what the Bible is, and that's not how we should look at it. I'm not, I'm not looking to the Bible as some pious, pie-in-the-sky religion that has no connection with my life, because that's not what the Bible is as well. I'm looking for something I can apply to my life, my circumstances, in the real world in which I live today and the world in which you live today. And thankfully, the Bible provides that and more for us. So we're going to be looking for God's wisdom to, to hit us right where we are. And today, we're going to start not with a particular episode from the life of David. We're going to look at some of his family heritage. Because I've discovered this as I've gotten older, a little bit older, as I entered my 30s a while back, <laughs> I discovered this, that, that more and more I understand how one generation impacts the next generation and how I am the product of my own choices, my own decisions, the hand of God, all those things, but I'm also the product of my parents who were products of their parents. And I'm coming to understand how the generations flow one into the next. So, so we're going to step back in time and we're going to look at uh, the book of Ruth this morning. The book of Ruth. And so if you have your Bibles in the Old Testament, you may want to turn there. We're going to cover the whole book all too briefly. And I'm going to pull out some points uh, that we can learn about. Because the book of Ruth impacted David very specifically. And so we're going to set the background uh, by looking at, uh, at, at the book of Ruth. Because it was Ruth that describes how God used a woman you may know, Naomi, in order to bring about... King David, the greatest king that Israel has known. And so, so we think about the impact and importance of families. And you know, every one of us is a product of a family. And every family has its differences one to another, but every family has its similarities as well. There, we all have the similarities of the, the family member who is kind, the family member who is generous, the family member who is crazy. Now listen. If you don't know who the crazy member of your family is, it's probably you. That's right. 
And Mother's Day is a great day to look at this character from the book of Ruth, Naomi, the great-great-grandmother of David. And Mother's Day is a great day to talk about this character, Naomi, and the influence of her motherhood and of her life of faith and the world in which she lived in that so much mirrors the life that we, the, the world that we live in today, that, that there are lots of great resources we can draw from, lots of great principles that we can look to. And I want to draw just a few of those out for you today because we all want to have good, solid families, don't we? Okay, that was kind of weak. We all want to have good, solid families, don't we? We do. And, and you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, there, there's, there's what we call the, the Facebook family. You, you know what the Facebook family is, right? That's you put, you put this picture of your family on Facebook that looks like it's the most perfect family in the whole wide world. And lots of people look at pictures of your family on Facebook and they say, wow, I wish I could have a family like that. That's just what they do. But behind the scenes, it's not always like that, is it? Oh, you, you, okay, you're going to leave me hanging. Behind the scenes, it's not always like that. Pam and I went out to eat last night in, uh, in Roxborough, and we went, we went to a restaurant. And we're walking up to the restaurant, and I can imagine there, there's a, an older woman who we thought was grandma, then there's a younger woman that we thought was mom, and then there were two boys. One would look, he's, it looked like he was about 10 or 11, the other about 6. And grandma was taking a picture of mom with her boys, blocking the door of the restaurant we're going into. So we're forced to watch. It wasn't like we were eavesdropping. We, were, we had to stand there and wait. Here's mom. Get over here. Stand up straight. Shut up. And smile. <laughs> and Pam's got my hand. She's just kind of grabbing my hand like, are you watching this? And so, so there's mom. There's these kids, and, and they're all like growling at each other back and forth. And all of a sudden, grandma says, one, two. And they all chirp up, take the picture. And then Mama starts fussing at him to get in the car. I, I, I like talking like that. That's how she was talking. She was talking like that. So, so that's how it went. But, but, but you know, we, we all have this image. We, we want to present a, a wonderful picture of our family, but, you know, we want it to be real. None of us want to be hypocritical. We, won't, we don't want to put beautiful pictures on Facebook and other places only to have a, a grumpy mom and, 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 and crazy kids in the background. We, we want to have the kind of family that will, that will represent uh, our faith in wonderful ways. So, so I, I want to walk through, all too briefly, the book of Ruth for you. Many of us have read it and studied it. Uh, you may have glanced through it from a time to time. You may not know where it is, but it's somewhere in the Old Testament around the book of Psalms. So you'll, you'll find it if you look in that direction. Uh, so, so here's a summary. Uh, the book of Ruth takes place during a period in Israel's history known as the Judges. This period lasted about 350 years. It's in between when Israel came in and conquered the land that God had promised them and where Saul became the king. So, so a, a long period there of about 350 years. And several times in the book of Judges, we, we find the same phrase repeated. For example, in Judges 17 verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everybody was just kind of on their own. There was no governing authority. People were in the land. Uh, they, they had, had uh, uh, different rules and regulations they followed in their area. They had the Word of God, the Ten Commandments. But there was no central government. There was no governing authority. And so the phrase, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, describes this period of history that lasted for several generations. 
And, and, uh, and, and I see lots of parallels in our world today that it seems like everybody's just kind of doing what's right in their own eyes. Don't you think that's true? Well, Naomi is, is, a, is the central character, perhaps, in the book of Ruth. And she was married to Elimelech. And there was a famine that caused Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons to move from Israel across over into Moab. And that the famine drove them over there, and they spent about ten years in Moab. And while there, over those ten years, Elimelech and her two sons, all three died. All the men in her life died. And so there was Naomi in a foreign land, left with a husband and two boys that had died. Each of the boys had married, and so she was there with her two daughters-in-law. And Naomi said, I'm going back home. I'm going back to Israel. I'm going back to, to my home in Bethlehem. And, and she told both of her daughters-in-law, go back to your families. And one of the daughters-in-law did, Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah. And the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, said, no, I'm going to go with you. So Naomi and Ruth go back to Israel. Naomi from Bethlehem, Ruth a Moabite. And so they return, and, uh, and, and when they get there, uh, Naomi brings with her the bitterness of the loss that she had had, the bereavement. She brought with her the results of being dislocated from her, her people and from her family. She brought with her, most likely, quite a bit of poverty. We know this because the men in her life had died, and they were the providers, and oftentimes widows were left to the mercy of their family and to the mercy of those that were around them. And we know by the events in the book of Ruth that she probably uh, was depending day to day on the generosity of others even to eat. She also had with her a sense of abandonment from God. So the book of Ruth lays out the struggles of this mother, Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem. It's time for the barley harvest. And, and so, so, so they get there, they get settled in. And so, so Naomi tells Ruth she can go out and glean from the barley fields. And what that means is, and this is why we think they were in poverty, is that the workers in the field would be gathering up the grain to sell it and to, and, and to, and to use it for the owner of the field. But they often allowed those in need, the poor people, to come in behind the workers and as the workers would glean or would, 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 would harvest the crops, anything that fell to the ground would often be left for the poor to come behind and to have food so that they could eat. So Naomi instructs Ruth, go behind the, the, the farmers and, and pick up there, and, and that will provide some food for us. And she happened to go to the field of a man named Boaz. And it turns out that Boaz is a kinsman, a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, who had died. And when Boaz is made aware of the circumstances, he tells uh, Ruth three things. He tells Ruth, he says, uh, work with the female servants that are there in the field with him. He warns the young men. He said, don't go near Ruth. You stay away from her. Don't cause her any problem, any harm. And then at the same time, he invited her to share his food. And so he was showing her mercy and showing her compassion. Now, when Naomi learns that Ruth has the attention and the kindness of Boaz... She tells Ruth to, to follow the following procedure. And this means nothing to us, but in the day it meant a lot. There was a kinsman, there was a relative, and he was well off. And so Naomi tells Ruth, when he goes to lie down in the threshing floor, now that he was the owner of the field, 
And so, so he had the responsibility. Everything belonged to him. So as the owner, he was there to protect, keep his eye on everybody, make sure everything went accordingly. And so when he laid down at night, Naomi told Ruth, put your best clothes on and go to him where he's laying to sleep and at his feet pull up the corner of his blanket and lay at his feet. And he will tell you what to do. Now, this was a sign. We, we, you know, that means nothing to us. But, but to, to uh, Boaz and to the culture that day, it meant that Ruth was consenting to him as a kinsman redeemer, as a relative of her family, that she would marry him if he would marry her and claim his role as the kinsman redeemer. Boaz, of course, we know the story, did that. He married Ruth, and they had a son, and, uh, and the son's name was Obed. And in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And so the women of the town say, Naomi has a son. The woman who is bitter, the woman who was, who was in difficult situations, she now has a son. Her family had been taken away, and now she has a son to carry on the lineage. So Obed was the name of the child born to Ruth and Boaz. He was the father of Jesse and the grandfather of King David. And I want to take just a few minutes this morning and talk about faith in the real world as we see it lived out through the life of Naomi because it also has some wonderful principles for you and I as we live out life in the world in which we live today. Just a couple of principles I want to share. The first one is this. God has a plan. <laughs> Amen. God has a plan. It may not always look like it, but God has a plan, and it includes family. There are three references in the Bible to the verse we first see in Genesis 2 and verse 24. Very early in the history of man, God says that a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two shall become one. Out of that union, children are born, and children are raised up to know and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so that's God's standard. It's established in Genesis 2. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus affirms it there in the days of the New Testament uh, when he speaks of, of marriage. And in the days of the New Testament church, in the book of Ephesians, the New Testament church affirms as well that not only is, is this God's relationship, but it's a picture of God's relationship to us. Marriage, that's what marriage is. And so that's God's purpose, and that's God's plan. And so Naomi was a part of that plan. She had married Elimelech. She had had two sons. She no doubt held the family together. She did her part. When they moved to Moab, she went willingly, and she did her part there. And then everybody around her died. The thing we need to understand is that even when tragedy comes to a family, God still has a plan. He still has a plan. See, there was hope for Naomi and Naomi did not see this for, for years, perhaps. But God had a purpose and God had a plan. And when her family fell apart, even though she didn't see it, God was there. Just like when our families face difficulties of all kinds, God sees it and God is there as well. The second, uh, the second principle I want you to notice here, and again, I'm, I'm moving all too quickly, is that God provides for us in difficult times. I know none of us here have ever had difficult times in our family. I know that we're, we're all above that. Amen? But if there happens to be one here, or really I could say all of us here, when we face those difficult times, God is with us and he provides. They had moved to Moab due to famine and stayed about 10 years. They, they, the sons had married the, 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 the husband and, and each of the sons dies. And, and like many of us, Naomi's 
family changed dramatically, and we don't know if it happened all at once or over the period of a short period of time, but over the span of the time there in Moab, these three men in her life all die. And she's facing a dramatic change in her family, in relationships, in finances, in, in, in jobs, in status, all these things suddenly come into play. And, and, and like, like many of us uh, whose, whose families change, sometimes it's because of death, the death of a spouse, the death of a child, the death of a parent. Sometimes it's because of divorce. Sometimes it's because the family's uprooted because of a job or, or, or some other reason and the family moves. Sometimes it's a health issue in some family member's life. Sometimes it's finances if, if suddenly the, the job dries up or goes away or, 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 is, or is taken away. Sometimes it's a job issue that suddenly takes mom or dad away from home from an extended period of time. Sometimes it's, it's a terrible national event like a war or a depression or a recession. And a thousand other events can lead us to have difficult times. And more often than we would even know, there are families walking around facing difficulties of all kinds. One of the things that being in ministry has taught me is that some of the most uh, uh, wonderfully presented families in the world, not trying to be hypocritical, but they, everybody wants to present themselves well, but behind the scenes is often some of the, the most difficult times that anyone would ever face in our families and we all know that life can go from being pleasant to being bitter in a split second. In fact, in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, Ruth says to the people there in Bethlehem, Do not call me Naomi. My name is no longer Naomi. Now, Naomi means pleasant. She was named Pleasant. That's a nice name. Isn't that a pleasant name, to be named Pleasant? She said, Don't call me that anymore. Don't call me Pleasant. Don't call me Naomi because my life is not like that anymore. She said, instead, call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. No longer call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? God has brought calamity upon me. You can imagine how difficult life was for Naomi to suddenly be in this situation and to find herself back home. And everybody, though glad to see her, recognizes that she is now in poverty and has lost so much in her life. And it seems cruel and it seems difficult and it seems tragic. But here's the point. Even in those circumstances that you and I face like Naomi did, God is there. God is at work. Naomi was upset. <laughs> she, she knew that she had been blessed and she knew the blessing had been taken away and she felt like it was God who had taken everything away from her. And now she came back bitter at what had happened. You know, God allows us to walk through those difficult times. There are those that get into a time of difficulty and they'll call me up, come by, talk, email pray together, and it goes something like this sometimes. Pastor, what have I done that God has brought this upon me? Or, or I can't think of anything I've done and to, to, to deserve this, and God has suddenly brought this upon me. And, 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 and listen, as pastor, I don't have a magic answer for why anybody is in the circumstances that they're in. Sometimes it's very obvious, but oftentimes it's not. And all I can say is I hear you, I hurt with you, 
and I will pray with you, but I'll promise you this. No matter your circumstances, God is at work. Psalm 23 and verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice that phrase, the valley of the shadow of death. Even if we come up to the point of death, and even in death itself, God is with us. We need to always remember that and never forget. The third principle I want to point out to you is this, and that's that God guides us beyond our comprehension. God guides us in ways that we cannot even comprehend. I, I love the study experiencing God. And in the study experiencing God, there are seven principles related to the life of Moses. And principle number one in experiencing God is this. God is always at work. Never forget that God is always at work. He's, a, he's at work when we're aware of it. He's a wor at work when we're unaware of it. He's at work when we're following him closely. He's even at work when we turn and reject him. He is still at work. God guided Naomi. Think about this with me. God guided Naomi to return to Israel and to Bethlehem. God guided Naomi to allow Ruth to come back with her. In the, in the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Ruth says to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. When you, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And Ruth was awesome in this, wasn't she? She says to Naomi, I love you. I'm dedicated to you. Let me go with you. And God guided so that that could occur. God uh, guided Naomi to guide Ruth to go and to gather at a certain place out in the field. She guided, uh, God guided Naomi to guide Ruth as to how to treat Boaz and to let him know in a respectful and respectable manner as the custom of that day who she was and what the relationship was and what the connection was. God was in all of that. And then God guided Ruth. You see, the hand of God on Ruth's life all throughout the book of, of Ruth, she, she, God guided her to stay with Naomi and not to go back home. It may have been more, much more easy to go back home. But God guided her to stay with Naomi. God guided her to the right field in which to work. And He guided her so that she would be noticed among all the women that were out there. She was noticed, and God surely had His hand in that. And then God guided Boaz. Boaz was just minding his own business, going about trying to, trying to get the harvest in. But he, he guided Boaz so that he might notice Ruth. Now, Ruth was not looking for a husband. She was trying to survive today. She was hot. She was sweaty. She was, was, was no doubt just not her best presentation. And yet God directed Boaz to notice her. God directed Boaz to protect Ruth, to say to her, stay in my field, stay close to my other servants, and to stay, uh, to stay protected where I can protect you. God guided Boaz to respond to Ruth when she came to him at night and made him aware of the relationship and of her willingness for him to exercise his right as kinsman redeemer. Remember this, God is always at work. Say that with me. God is always at work. Let's never forget that. The fourth principle I'll point out to you is that God blesses our faithfulness. He blesses our faithfulness, and He's even at work in our faithlessness. For Naomi, even when she was bitter from her loss, she stayed faithful from what we can tell by 
by following uh, God. Ruth, even though she was widowed in a foreign land, was faithful to Naomi. When she said to Naomi, I will go where you go and your God will be my God. She expressed a faith in the God of Israel. And Boaz, simply out there living the right kind of life, looking to, to, to get in his harvest, but also exercising and carrying out the right customs of the day uh, in faithful ways that would protect both his testimony and the testimony of Ruth. Now, fifth principle I'll point out to you is this. I love this one. God uses the unlikely for his glory. God uses the most unlikely people for his glory. We read about people in the Bible, and we put them up on this big old pedestal as, as great spiritual giants, and we should, but we fail often to recognize where they were when God got a hold of them. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't born on a pedestal. Ruth was from Moab. Moab. She was a Moabitess a descendant of Lot and viewed as a pagan, as an outsider in the land of Israel. Boaz was the son of Rahab. Rahab was the prostitute of Jericho. So God uses the son of the prostitute and the girl from the wrong side of the tracks to produce the greatest king in Israel. You think about that, how God uses unlikely people from even broken circumstances. In the book of Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 1, it gives the genealogy of Jesus. And, and, and God, through Matthew, makes very clear to point out how he uses the unlikely to accomplish the impossible. Matthew 1, verses 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. If, if we're not careful, we skim through these genealogies. There is, there is rich message from God in these genealogies and other things. I can remember feeling like I had no business being in church as a teenager. I can remember feeling like I, of all the people that were going to know Christ as Savior, I'm the, le I'm, I'm the least deserving of that. And, and I can remember as a Christian feeling called by God to go into ministry and to become a pastor and a preacher, thinking, God, there's no way. I don't deserve I'm I am the least of the least. I cannot go and do that. I'm not qualified. I saw this list somewhere. I want to share it with you today. Hopefully it'll, it'll help you like it's helped me. Before you say you're not qualified with God, just remember a few things. Noah got drunk. Abraham was too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob lied. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses was a murderer and could not talk straight. Gideon and Samson were afraid. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was a murderer and adulterer. Elijah was suicidal. Isaiah preached naked. Jonah ran from God. Yeah, I said that right. And Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Martha worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was a murderer. Timothy had an ulcer. And Lazarus? He was dead. <laughs> the next time you think you're unqualified for God to work in your life or use you in some way to do something, you think about that list. And you think about this important truth that God uses the unlikely to accomplish the impossible, that he might receive the glory. I want to invite you to stand with me as we conclude our service this morning.
And as we stand, I want to share with you a verse of Scripture from 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has made His light to shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure. We have this treasure of the glory of God displayed in jars of clay. That's, our, that's who we are. We're just jars of clay, just common, everyday earth. There's nothing special about us except for the fact that we contain the glory of God is inside of us when we know Christ as Savior. We contain this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says God uses the unlikely and the broken, the fallen away, the destitute, the sinner, the worst of the worst and the least of the least. And he takes the, his glory and he puts his glory inside of us when we trust Christ as Savior. And then God uses that to display his glory to others. When I read that list... When I read this passage, I say, you know what? I am qualified. I'm broke. I can't, I can't talk straight. There's this and there's that and there's this and there's that. I'm qualified. I'm just old jar of clay. God puts his glory in, and God can use me, and God can use you. God used Naomi, and God used Ruth, and God used Boaz. Insert your name here. God can use you. Will you allow him to do that? Don't ever come to God and say, God, I'm not qualified. I'm not worthy. He knows all that already. He qualifies you. He makes you worthy. He puts his glory inside. All he says, believe. Have faith. Commit your life to me. And see how I can work in and through your life. And listen, you know what that is? That's faith in the real world. That's faith in the real world. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Doesn't matter what our culture is. Doesn't matter what's happening in Washington, D.C. Doesn't matter what's happening at the stock market. Doesn't matter what's happening in this life or that life or this school or that team or whatever else. All that matters is this. God says, will you believe? Will you receive? Will you live for my glory? And if you will, if you do, I will use you, the unlikely, to accomplish the impossible that the glory of Jesus might shine through. I want that to be the story of my life. I want that to be the story of your life. I want that to be the story of Ridgecrest Baptist Church. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Our Heavenly Father, in the moments that we have left, would you impress upon us your great grace and your great mercy on this Mother's Day? As we think about a mother in the Scripture named Naomi, Lord Jesus, would you help us to recognize these wonderful principles that you made absolutely clear to us in Scripture through the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew and through a, an entire book of the Bible, Ruth, that you might convey to us how you take us where we are. Use us for your glory. May it be so in our lives and our families. And we pass it down from generation to generation as we praise your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray even now. Amen.